cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a fascinating guest, and I think you'll really enjoy listening to him. His name is John Montgomery. He is a former uh, civil engineer slash transportation engineer who decided to take his love of quantitative mathematics and apply it in the world uh, of investing. If that isn't somewhat unusual enough of a background, he managed to put together not only a firm that's running $8.5 billion, but a very unusual firm with, as you'll hear, some very unusual qualifications, including the fact that Bridgeway gives away half of their profits to various charitable organizations every year. He also has some internal rules about um, how much he can be compensated relative to the lowest compensated person in the firm. You know, 30 years ago, the CEO to factory floor ratio was something about 25 to 1. Uh, it's now somewhere, depending on whose numbers you use, 250 to 400 to 1. Uh, at Bridgeway, the highest paid person and lowest paid person, it's a 7 to 1 ratio. That is really quite unusual. Their goals and focus and client customer service are just not what you typically hear on Wall Street. And uh, they're, they're evidence-based. They're data-driven. I think that they are not the usual firm, and that's why I wanted to have John on the show, because uh, his story and Bridgeway's story is somewhat unique and, and kind of fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with Bridgeway's John Montgomery. My special guest today is John Montgomery. He is the founder of Bridgeway Capital Management, an asset management firm which is running $8.4 billion. Bridgeway is unique in a number of ways. Perhaps most notably, the firm donates 50% of its profits to nonprofit organizations each year. John Montgomery, welcome to Bloomberg. It's an honor to be here, Barry. So you have a really interesting background. And before we get to the asset management side, I have to talk a little bit about your education, which is somewhat unusual for someone running an asset management firm. Undergraduate, you're at Swarthmore. And what are you studying there? Philosophy and engineering. Okay, which is a good combination of things. Unusual, but... A little left brain, right brain. Absolutely. It kind of works. 
And then you end up going to MIT and Harvard. What do you study there? Uh, engineering at mm-hmm. MIT. So that's where I have my background in statistics and quantitative modeling. And at uh, Harvard, I study business. And so you come out of that world essentially working in transportation engineering? That's right. That was and, my first career. But while you were at Harvard Business School, you, you have written about and told the story of a, for lack of a better word, an epiphany that you had there. Tell us about that. Well, I call it uh, my, my first uh, behavioral finance insight. <laughs> this was in uh, 1984, and it was uh, very early on in behavioral finance, so I didn't even know the field existed. Um, but I was uh, at Harvard Business School really to um, learn more, fill in gaps in my knowledge base uh, about business, and specifically in transportation. I didn't have any idea at that point that I would go into finance. But I thought, while I'm at Harvard, I'll take a few investing courses and maybe earn back the opportunity cost of taking two years out of your life after you were already um, had some jobs. Mm-hmm. So I uh, did that. My grades said that uh, I should have gone to Wall Street. Those were among my best grades uh, in business school. But I was in one particular class one day where we were studying uh, a quantitative method of investing. And I found that fascinating. And at the end of the class, the professor steps back from the blackboard and he kind of tugs on his beard and he says, so who among the people in this class think that when you get out of school here and probably go to Wall Street that you'll be beating this record? Well, this was a pretty fine record. It wasn't just beating the market. It was, it was doing quite well. 80% of the hands in the class go up. And the immediate thought that I had was the 80-20 rule. 80% of the people think they can beat the market, but it's probably the other way around. And it's probably, at that point, not the 80% um, that had the discipline uh, to do it. And if you think about um, you know, a, a top-tier uh, business school, very bright people, uh, what has worked for them, getting them to a certain place in life, doesn't always work in investments. As a matter of fact, some of the dynamics of that works against you. Michael Mobison calls that the paradox of skill when you have an entire marketplace filled with very smart, very competitive people, they all kind of cancel each other out. Yes. So part of the dynamics of that that I thought was, uh, if this is a microcosm of Wall Street five years from now, then using quantitative methods should help get you on the other side of that investment, which should have some uh, benefits of efficiency and cost and some other things. So that, that was just a seed planted for what would become Bridgeway uh, some uh, decade later. So that's still a pretty significant insight to look around a room full of really smart people and say, uh, like Lake Wobegon, where all the children are above average, how is it possible that 80% of the room thinks they're going to beat the market? If you want to see the same numbers come up, ask a room, next time you're speaking in front of a group of people, ask everyone in the room how many of them are above average drivers. And it's the same number, 80% of the hands go up. And if you've been on the roads, you know that everybody seems to be below average. So, Barry, my answer to that question, usually it's a humble, it's like, no, I'm not, probably I'm not. And in business school, I 
didn't think I was going to be in the top half of the class. But with respect to driving, I've never had a chargeable accident, um, and I've never had a moving traffic violation in never some had a moving 40 traffic violation. Years oh, you're of, not trying hard enough. So I always go back to the statistics, the logic, the data, the evidence. Evidence-based investing is what we do, and, right? And so that's a knee-jerk reaction for me. Is like, well, let's just take a look at the numbers and see what. It so informs. if you believe in mean regression, uh, that would suggest you might be due for a. Ticket. So that that could be true t- as well, and so you want to differentiate when things do and don't regress to the mean. Mm-hmm. Is there skill or just luck in driving? Uh, there's cert- like investing, there's certainly both. The the and and like sports where you need a certain amount of skill to make it to the major leagues, but at that level where everybody is so skillful, luck becomes even more important. So how did you go from transportation engineering as a career to turning around and saying, gee, that epiphany at Harvard Business School is something I really want to pursue. First of all, transportation is a service industry. I love service industries, and mm-hmm. anytime, uh, anytime I'm experienced service that's um, subpar, I think there's a market opportunity there. Whether it's a <laughs> restaurant, a hotel, anywhere. Like if you're just doing a lousy job providing service, you're inviting competition in. Um, so uh, I was in the transportation service industry, but I was also an investor in a couple of mutual funds, setting up an IRA and thinking like, you should be able to do better than this. Not just the investment, the whole performance process. side, but the communications, what you know, the talked about. Just I, I had a dozen ideas for how you could um, improve that industry. So um, at the time, uh, I, I have an entrepreneurial spirit and hit a certain uh, roadblock wall, you could say, professionally in the transportation uh, industry where I was trying to bring private sector uh, incentives um, and some insights I had about how to reorganize city uh, urban transportation bus systems in particular took that to a certain level and um, and and then it was clear it wasn't going to happen you, you hit the wall. Problem. I hit the wall this was uh, an opportunity uh, to transition and do something that I'd been doing as a hobby let's talk a little bit about some current trends and as we ease into quantitative investing. What you've been doing for a long time is essentially factor investing, which really today goes under the branding name Smart Beta. Yes. So the first question is, how did you manage to find your way into that methodology? And what do you think of the the rise of Smart Beta today? Well, first of all, the, the name Smart Beta kind of ruffles my feathers some. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's data. It's There's nothing... Human or 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 um, there's nothing smart or beta about it. Well, maybe beta. You can you can argue uh, beta or alpha or mm-hmm. you know a different system of looking at it. Uh, but the smart part sounds to me like a bunch of guys in a room of marketing trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to sell something. It's good branding, and and I think everybody and who criticizes nothing, it says and there's that. nothing wrong with branding. But uh, you know we want to we we go first to the substance of it. So. Well, first of all, we didn't call it factor investing 25 mm-hmm. years ago, but absolutely applying quantitative methods to the process of investing and then figuring out as many different ways to apply uh, numerical methods as possible. So mm-hmm. that's not just the deciding which stocks to stay away from and, and which you're adding to a portfolio to um, produce a certain design and, and results that you're going for. But it's also thing, things like transaction cost, uh, managing every other aspects of cost, um, the business side, strategy side. We like um, what we call evidence-based worldview mm-hmm. at Bridgeway. So if you're using quantitative methods for what we now call factor investing, pharma, French, et cetera, 
Um, were you ever playing with the idea of individual stock picking, or was it always a mathematical screen? We don't we don't purchase individual stocks. We buy groups of stocks, mm-hmm. so that is uh, key to um, factor based investing and, and an evidence based uh, worldview. And so that leads to the important question: What is it that drives stock performance over the long term? So the stock market has to follow the economy long term. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, in the short term, it absolutely doesn't. Uh, there are two things we think that uh, drive returns. One is risk. So mm-hmm. in the beginning, 25 years ago, definitely had a risk-based worldview, and, and Eugene Fama was a, a major contributor to my thinking on that. Uh, uh, I took a year and a half off before founding Bridgeway to do research on the quantitative methods I'd been using uh, individually, writing a big business plan for uh, Bridgeway and 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 learning more. Uh, the the let, let me interrupt you there because I I find that fascinating. You're you're working in a field. You're fairly well compensated, but you hit the wall and you instead of saying I'm going to just switch jobs or even switch careers, you say I'm going to take a year off and think about what I want the next phase of my life to be. Is that? A fair description. That's right, and I had a I had a, a model for that. There was a mayor of Houston, Bob Lanier, at the time, mm-hmm. who had four different careers, and every time he switched careers, he took a year off to study the heck out of the next thing uh, that he was doing, and he was very thoughtful about it. And I thought that was a fascinating idea. Mm-hmm. Um, Let the record reflect that the guest used the word fascinating multiple times before I did. I always get emails making fun of my <laughs> over reliance on the word fascinating. But I find things fascinating, as do you. So I'm yes. glad you you brought that up. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Four separate careers, and you based this decision making on that model. That's correct. And so when you spent the year researching quantitative finance and running an asset management firm, uh, where did that lead you? How, well, how that did was, that that was that period was when Fama French published their seminal paper. Uh, on value oh, really? investing, so so we had you know early 1980s uh, small the small size effect uh, mm-hmm. had been around when I was fascinated small with cap that. premium etc absolutely but the value part was uh, really resonated with me mm-hmm. the thought you know I'm buying a refrigerator it's one place or another place and if it's basically the same refrigerator some way to figure out that they're comparable I'm going to go for the lower price sure that just resonated with me and made sense that that would uh, work and there was a risk-based world um, framework for that uh, that I really bought into. And it wasn't until probably 15, 10, 10, 15 years later uh, that I started reading uh, more and thinking about the behavioral insights. And there was one factor that really put me over the top on that. Explain. That's the low volatility factor. Mm -hmm. So if you think, if you have a a risk-based worldview and you think, okay, value stocks are uh, more volatile in some sense, they're riskier, um, so they should less do liquid, less uh, go through the number list. of things. Uh, they should do you know as a group better in the long term. Size, same thing. If you've got fewer products, uh, less diversification, less access to the capital markets, that's more risk, absolutely. And mm-hmm. they, it makes sense that you would have higher returns over the long term with that. But the but the low volatility factor turns that on its head. And, and what was remarkable to me was that it wasn't a bigger problem for more people that the low-volatility stocks did better 
in the long term. And go, wait a minute, we talk about measuring risk, and we can go into a lot of detail on what's risk, but most common way to measure risk in academia is standard deviation of returns. Specifically measuring the exact same way, the low volatility is less risk by definition and should do less well over the long term. But the reverse is true. Why is that? You, you can't, in my mind, it was just a complete short circuit. That Those two things don't go together. If that's true, something else must be driving these stocks. What is that? And I think that's behavioral finance. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people focus on the models, but they don't pay that close attention to the execution of these models. How can you take advantage of, of ability to execute, ability to perform, versus just the plain old algorithm? Well, the algor- first of all, the algorithms are built by people. Mm-hmm. So there's a very strong human component to that. And the models are only as good as the, the, the modeling process that you've got. So that would be um, where I start. Uh, I think there are huge advantages to machines being able to process huge amounts of data. So that's the, the key advantage there. And we're learning more uh, all the time about technology and artificial intelligence and where that might go. Let's talk a little bit about your corporate culture. And uh, I find some things about Bridgeway quite fascinating. First, $8.5 billion is a nice chunk of money. You're somewhat under the radar. Is that a conscious decision? Or is that just happenstance of being in Houston? I would say both. Um, early on, we had some thought of being about substance and not fluff, mm-hmm. and that has continued uh, in our culture and worldview. And obviously, the other giant issue, it's unusual to see a finance company that gives away half their profits to charity each year. Tell us a little bit about how that came about and uh, how you execute on that. Well, Barry, I'd say naivete has worked pretty well for me in life. <laughs> uh, so I got married at 21. Uh, that's not uh, the statistics on that are not great. Um, uh, statistics would say uh, wait a while, get more life experience. But it was awesome for me. I'm married to um, the love of my dreams for 40 years now. Just celebrated wow. a 40th anniversary. I think you just celebrated 25. 20, I'm a youngster. Um, so that's worked out great. Also, when I was founding Bridgeway, we, we had some concern, my wife and I, about if professionally we were as successful as I had been over the prior six years individually with the model that I had. This is a quantitative model, so you didn't have to hire an army of analysts. Uh, so it was a low-cost strategy aspects that, of, of modeling that we had worked with for some time, then it should be a cash cow. In the investment advisory business, there's no accounts receivable. There's no accounts because people, you know, right. you're managing you have their, their money. You have their money. There's no inventory except computers, which are actually pretty cheap these days. Mm-hmm. There's no, it's an amazing cash cow business. And we thought, so what would you do with uh, those resources? And we actually had some concern 25 years ago that that could be a problem in raising kids and the environment within which we raised them. More money's not always good, in spite of the fact what we do for a living is is manage money. So uh, we thought, had the naive thought of giving half away, there'd be uh, less around. Interestingly, <laughs> about 10 years into the process of, of Bridgeway Capital Management, I had the thought, well, that didn't work out at all. The money that's left when you're that generous and you build it in the fabric of a company and you are able to hire and retain inspired people, the benefits of that to the company far outweigh the half that you give away. So we mm-hmm. actually, that was a bust. Uh, 
I figured out at, at 10 years. It's much more powerful when you have a generous spirit. So in other words, giving away money ended up generating too much in return for yourself. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Too much, you know, okay. So then <laughs> more it's a matter than expected. of what you, more than expected for sure. And you also do something else that's kind of unusual. Your compensation as chairman is limited to 7x the lowest paid employee. Am I getting that correct? So we now talk about that as our uh, stewardship imperative. Uh So if you're a new person coming into Bridgeway, the conversation goes something along these lines. One, we're here to make a difference uh, in the world. And that's that's really what we're about for our clients first, because that's why we're here for our fellow partners, each other. And that's partners is the word we use for all the staff um, with a full-time and long-term commitment at Bridgeway. Uh, and also the communities that we live in. However, we expect everybody to engage in that. And and if you look back over 40 years of compensation in the U.S., it's pretty clear to me that things have gotten out of hand at the top end. I just didn't want to get caught up in that uh, at Bridgeway. And actually, it's a pretty great screening tool for if you if you put at one end of the spectrum uh, greed and a lot of things that the finance industry is criticized for, and at the other hand, uh, generosity and making a difference in life at the other end of the spectrum, it's pretty great to be able to say, if you want to make seven figures and you're about generating you know personal wealth at the high end, you won't come to Bridgeway. Like There are other places to do that. We don't make any value judgments uh, about that. We just think that life is about... Um, more. And if you take that attitude and worldview, it's incredibly powerful. You also have a requirement that all the staff members are shareholders in Bridgeway and they are unable to make investments outside of the firm. Uh, Does that include the firm's investment portfolios? How do you how do you manage that? So two things. One, we have what we call a partner stock ownership, mm-hmm. uh, which is typically referred to as an ESOP. So um, all the uh, full-time uh, people at Bridgeway, uh, currently about 20% of your W-2 goes to buy stock in the advisory firm. And that's mm-hmm. across the board. That's not typically a firm our size. The top five people or so would have stock. Uh, this is broadly based across the full spectrum uh, mm-hmm. of salaries. Some people think like, oh, so you have an ownership culture. We say, yeah, there are aspects of that. So, yes, you want to you know, treat cost as you know, your cost. Sure. Uh, and, but it, we, we like to focus on the stewardship aspect of that. We, there's an there's a asset, resources that we've been entrusted with mm-hmm. on behalf of our clients, on behalf of the, the public good, when you talk about the foundation, mm-hmm. we want to do an excellent job with that. That's the focus, um, and we think that comes back in, in multiple ways. Let's talk a little bit about the modern world of investing. We see index funds taking assets from active managers. You're experiencing the opposite. You're seeing inflows. Uh, what are you doing to attract assets when most non-index funds are seeing outflows. Well, certainly uh, we're, we're experiencing that in some places at, uh, at Bridgeway. First of all, we do have our own proprietary index fund. It's, um, it's non-market cap weighted, has some really cool, I'm an engineer by bagging, really cool design features that we've executed. We just celebrated 20 years. What makes that index unique and what led you away from cap weighting? Research. Research is what we live and breathe and do for a living on the the investment team. The market cap weighted index, the more a stock goes up, the more money you throw at it. Right. 
that's a momentum strategy. There's nothing wrong with momentum. It works over the long term, except till the, till the end. Except, well, that's true. But the, but the main thing is you have to you have to you have to sell it over a r- relatively short period of time. Probably you know somewhere between three months and twelve months. If you just hold on forever, then it goes up, and then when it falls, you go down. That's a very inefficient structure. Mm-hmm. So with that insight, we went back and said, okay, is there is there a different structure? We studied a number of them. This was you know twenty plus years ago now, mm-hmm. uh, and a very basic. Equal, what we call roughly equal weighting strategy, uh, uh, has some really cool risk uh, statistics. So over the entire time frame since inception, um, you know, call it kind of flat between uh, our fund, our strategy in the blue chip 35 area, and um, S&P 500 uh, fund. But the risk characteristics are really cool. Out of the, the 10 worst downturn quarters of the S&P 500, we've, out, we've provided cushion in nine of those. So there's something special going on, and I think that relates right back to momentums with no hold period, just spinning it out is not a great strategy. That's what a market cap weighting is. So you have to be really careful about when you use market cap weighting and when you don't. So you're, you're evidence-based. You crunch a lot of data. The data typically suggests that when Markets are enjoying a high valuation. Your future expected returns uh, are likely to be lower. How do you perceive uh, the current environment? Is that a fair statement, or or am I overstating it? So if the question is, do I think the market is expensive, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, how expensive depends on how you measure it. But the second question really is like, okay, like statistically you can measure this based on history that is more ex- more expensive. So does that mean we should get out of the market? Should we time that somehow? And that's a very, very different question with, a, with, with an answer that takes you into a buy and hold strategy on the market overall. In other words, your, your expectation is, the odds are strongly against us. It's not only strongly, it's incredibly strongly against you. Uh, this goes back to that year and a half that I took off in, in 1992 into 93, doing research where I actually went back and studied the Great Depression. So mm-hmm. like, if you want a granddaddy of downturns, and you want to understand, if you're studying risk, which is what I was doing, you go back to that period. Some people say, like, John, you know, like the Fed didn't even exist in its current form. Why would you go back to the 1930s? My answer to that is, the specifics of risk have changed. Nuclear bombs didn't exist in the right. 1930s. So obviously, that's a very different risk. But the nature of risk itself has been around a long time. You can learn a lot. And I convinced myself from that a couple of things out of that exercise. One is be prepared for the downturn. They mm-hmm. will happen. It's not. It's inevitable. And, it, and it's behavioral. It's not just right. um, based on how expensive uh, the market is. Number two, it's incredibly difficult to time that. And, and we've done all this research on a lot of different ways, uh, systems that people have uh, done that. It's just very difficult to do. There's certain things you can reduce risk on, like I mentioned the uh, the market cap uh, weighting in large cap stocks. Um, but the second thing I learned from that is about leverage. So um, some of my uh, quant competitors use a very significant amount of leverage in long short strategies. I won't say that you know that's a complete you know that in all circumstances that's a bad idea, but you should be very 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 careful. The the Dow Jones Industrial Average in the Great Depression fell eighty six percent. You can't say it can't happen. It has happened. That's one thing about statistics is it's like oh that'll never well of course it can happen. It has already happened eighty six percent. If you've got debt on top of you know buying stocks, it doesn't take 
take much debt to completely blow you out, to cash you out, like you're out of investing. You know, pe- people forget uh, how uh, how recently we've seen a near 80% crash. Everybody says, well, 29 is so long ago. The NASDAQ in 2000 fell almost as much as the Dow yes. Jones did in 29. It yes. was, oh, I think it's just a hair under 80% of mem- memory serves. So it's not like it's 100 years ago. It's a decade and a half ago we experienced something very, very similar. Yes. So let's. that brings us, obviously, to the behavioral side. And you said something that I found quite fascinating. One... The first part of it is the importance of behavior to successful uh, investing. But the second half was really interesting. You said it's been 25 years of trying to help investors manage their behavior, and it sometimes feels like it's a losing battle. Yes. Tell us about that. So um, so this is probably uh, my biggest sore spot uh, professionally in the investment, uh, you know, the investment Industry and the service that we've provided, uh, the place where we're still living, uh, the, we have not solved the problem of what I refer to as the behavior gap. The behavior mm-hmm. gap coined, I believe, by uh, Carl Richards as a description of um, the natural tendency of human beings uh, to uh, buy more when things are going up, call it uh, greed or uh, just wanting to get on the, the bandwagon. Right. Uh, so it's chasing hot returns. Uh, and on the downside, uh, fear uh, when things uh, go poorly, when the stock market goes down. It predictably, and it is so broad-based, uh, that people are going to panic, and, and what do you do? You get out. And there are all different versions of this. It's, but it, So it's another version of marking timing. It's, it's behaviorally based. Um, and let me, let, me, let me give you a real-world example of this at Bridgeway. I looked sure. up statistics on uh, just before coming in, updated on uh, one of our more aggressive strategies. Over the last 15 years, according to Morningstar, the returns to investors of this fund is the average annual return is about two-thirds of the total return. So we've produced what I think is a very attractive 15-year uh, track record. The timing of when people get in, get in and get out, they're chasing hot returns. They mm-hmm. panic you know, in 08. The net of all that over the last 15 years is the average annual return is one-third less. Like, th- th- From that standpoint, think of like a third of the value that we've created and that the economy has created gets washed down the toilet by when people are in and out. It's worse than that, though. Think of that number, one-third. If you take an investing horizon of 30 years, like you're saving for retirement when you're 40, 30 years later, the amount of money that you've got is one-third, two-thirds less, one-third of what it would be had you just used a buy-and-hold strategy. Left it alone. So, so the emotional side of the behavior is that people underperform their own holdings and then you add to that the insult of – you add insult to injury by the loss of compounding of that yes. over the long haul. And this is, not, this is not just true of individual investors. It's true in a very broad sense of institutional investors as well. And, and the, the study I like to cite on that is a study that was done of pension fund performers. And they took a look at the three-year forward returns of managers that were fired versus the ones – that they hired to replace them. Mm-hmm. And what do you think happened? I'm assuming the activity ends up costing them more than had they done nothing.
nothing. Well, it not only costs them more if they're a transaction cost, but the actual performance of those two players is flipped based on what you would think. The fired manager does better because they're by de- you know they they're get being fired, fired at the bottom of that cycle. Right. If they have a solid process, now if they're doing you know screwy stuff, that's one thing. But they have a solid process. It's just out of favor. That's the time to be buying, not selling. It's upside down. I have a buddy who's a fairly well-known household name. He's a hedge fund manager and a value investor, and he says all the time he could tell when an underperforming investment is about to pay off. First, the phone starts to ring, then the emails (laughs) come, and then ultimately, clients start pulling money out, and usually it's at the moment when this underperforming value approach is about to take off. Yes. And it's it's been a uh, it's been an interesting observation just like the pension funds firing people yes. at the nadir of their yes. cycle. I'm most comfortable when everyone else is wringing their hands mm-hmm. as an investor. That's just my my personal makeup. It, that doesn't mean, however, that I should take that information and try and time the market. That would be the wrong conclusion. Mm-hmm. Just just holding through the downturns. Here's the here's another great. I mean, you think buy low, sell high, right? Everybody knows that. Most people will say they're doing that, and then you go back and track their actual numbers. They're not doing it's that. Much it's the easier. behavioral thing is much, much stronger. Right. It's much uh, easier than said than done. Actually, it doing it requires you to be comfortable when everybody is miserable. Yes. And 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 we haven't solved that problem. Like I can show you statistically, this is a problem at Bridgeway. By the way, it's it's true of the indexers too. You can look at Vanguard's you know biggest index fund. They've got this problem as well. Hmm. We've as an industry, we have got to work on this and solve it, and I think that's the next frontier. We have been speaking with John Montgomery. He is the chairman and chief investment officer of Bridgeway Capital Management. And if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we continue to chat about all things investing. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Email us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Welcome to the podcast. John, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate um, all of your time. There are so many questions we didn't get to. Before I get to my favorite standard questions, uh, there's a bunch of things 
I have to go back and, and ask you about because we blew through them so quickly. We talked earlier about the behavior gap. I have to ask you a question about that. Now, are you hearing from clients? Are you getting emails and phone calls given the supposed nosebleed valuation of the U.S. markets? We get questions, but I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's, it's overwhelming. Uh, in previous, that leads to the quantitative evidence question. In you've been doing this long enough. In previous market peaks, let's call it late '07 or late '99. Yes. Were you getting the same sorts of uh, inquiries? Did you? Was there anything to be learned by client expressions of fear, or they're usually greedier at the top than fearful? Well, the main thing is it's always easy to know what the top was after the fact. Sure. Uh, in the middle of it, uh, like, take us back to 1998-99. Remember the period very clearly. In 1998, I thought, oh, gee, this is really expensive. Like, we're really getting outside the the, the sweet spot of how, mm-hmm. how cheap or reasonable even uh, the market is. I don't like that. If I had acted on that insight, and I wasn't wrong, mm-hmm. along with other people, I wasn't wrong on that. Had I done that, we would have missed one of the best years in the stock market the following year. Uh, absolutely. So I rem- just because things are expensive doesn't mean that they won't get more expensive right. and that you should hold through that period. I remember in 96 was when Louis Rukeyser's elves first kind of turned bearish because they I, – I remember the phrase – the market is now fully valued, yes. as if that is significant. Yes. Like markets go to fair value and then stop. Yes. And that, that doesn't seem to, to happen. Sometimes they do, and at some point they will. You just don't know when it's going to be. So on your firm brochure, there's a line um, that I have to ask you about. Putting investors' long-term interests first is a hallmark of our firm's unique culture. Tell us what that means. What does putting investors first mean? It means sometimes you can make more money for yourself, and you shouldn't. Say that again. Sometimes Sometimes you can make more money for yourself than your client, and you shouldn't, because we have a fiduciary duty. That should come first. That's what fiduciary duty is. And by the way, this is the financial services industry. Like Mm -hmm. Some of this is law built into the 40 Act. Right. However, it's true of any industry. Like This should always be the case. I have a friend that says business is a platform for community and service. That's a good way to think about capitalism and and what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Putting our customer first should be how we wake up in the morning. Like that's that's what they pay us to do, and it's and it's a beautiful thing to be able to do that and to create wealth and and opportunities and employment and services and goods that people value and need and want. So. Two and 20% with gated withdrawals, not a big fan? Not a big fan. <laughs> uh, soft dollars would be, you know, the an example from day one where, it, you know, in the early days of Bridgeway, we could have paid for our Bloomberg terminals mm-hmm. with soft dollars. And, you know, like that would have flowed straight through to our bond. And frankly, it was a big deal. And we just said, no, it's not the right thing to do because this is really our customers' money. It's, it's, it's their money. And it's a, it's a poor structure that leads to poor decisions. We just don't think we should have anything to do with it. That was 25 years ago. We've never paid uh, uh, soft dollar commissions for research and terminals and the other things that you can do. So let's talk about your annual report. I've been reading Warren Buffett's most recent annual report and some of the ones from the 2000s. You've been doing an annual report for quite a while. Tell me about, quote, the worst thing of the fiscal year. 
What is that? <laughs> well, you know, I like to think that we listen to our, our investors. Um, and I had an investor conversation that went something like this. He was like, so I'm the, like, this is in the 40 Act Fund. I'm, a, I'm the shareholder. I'm the customer. And you're the manager. And you work for me. And I think that I have the right to know, like, the bad stuff. Like, most, you know, here's the shareholder letter, all this great stuff. Which is like, always, hey, look how I great think, we did, and yes, look at this. And, yes. And he said, spare me the accolades, tell me where you guys messed up. I just, I, like, think about it. You have a boss, your boss wants to know the stuff that's good, but also the stuff that's bad. I just couldn't get around that logic, and I thought... Dang, you know, there's just got to be some way to do it. So we brainstormed that. This was probably coming up on 20 years ago. It wasn't the very beginning of Bridgeway, but it wasn't too long after that. And we thought, well, we're just going to put in our annual report the worst thing that happened in the year. Huh. We'll just, you know, own up to it. Our law, this, by the, this drives lawyers nuts. It's like, John. you're admitting a liability. You, of absolutely. course they hate that. It's like you're putting on a silver platter of stuff for people to see you over. And, but and but I, built into that is... Otherwise, is the implication that we're flawless. We never made any mistakes. It's not only that, but you can't learn from the mistakes if you don't get them out in the open and on the table. That's the bottom line. And we are absolutely committed to learning from mistakes. We have this ball called the mistakes ball that we pass to the newest partner coming into Bridgeway. So whoever's Mm -hmm. the latest one has got it. And it's on the ball, it says, it's a baseball, and on the ball it says, mistakes are the jewels. We expect new people coming in, and by the way, old people that have been there at Bridgeway for some time, to make mistakes. If you're not making some mistakes, then then you're not going to achieve the mission that we've got in the world. That that's that's fascinating. Not to confuse Bridgeway with Bridgewater. Yes. Many years ago, I had read something that Dalio had written. So actually, I had I was complaining about some things in in the media. I won't mention the outlet that were just wrong, and they were consistently wrong. And every time I brought it to their attention, they refused to acknowledge it. It very simply had to do with. Um, annual home, uh, monthly home sales, and there's a pattern very clearly. The uh, due to weather, or whatever home sales start out pretty weak in the beginning of the year. They start to the spring is where it kicks up, and every year, April is better than March. June is better than April. August is better. You know, peaks around July, August, yes. and then it fades. And and people were saying, oh look, uh, you can't look at it month to month. You have to look at it July '09 to July '08, not. Yes. Oh, look, July is better than June. And I couldn't get these people to understand the math. And I was whining about it. Yes. And and somebody emailed me and said, well, it's it's good that you're bringing these errors to their attention. What are you doing about your own mistakes? Yes. And I said, that's a fair criticism. And every year I started publishing my own mea culpas. Here's what I got lo- wrong. And here's what I learned from it. What the person had sent me was something that Dalio had written about, which was exactly what you just described, which is you have to make mistakes and learn from them, otherwise you never improve. We're all yes. going to make mistakes. It's a given. Yes. But the lawyers give you grief about it. Well, not and in fairness, like our lawyers are at the, the high end. Like we're still doing it. Like we uh-huh. had a conversation, uh, uh, we're doing it. Um, but this is also human nature. It's not just lawyers. I'm putting them on the mm-hmm. hot spot. Uh, there we all, you know, we all tend toward being defensive and sure, like it hurts. So you walk away from you know the stuff that hurts. 
But if you want to improve and grow and be really great, and I'm an engineer, so I think of continual small improvements, mm-hmm. um, then you've got that's that's like that's your fodder. That's where you can really learn from and grow. There's a, there's one other principle that relates to this. I just want to mention, and that's diversity. Mm-hmm. So we all know you don't want to hire a bunch of yes people, right? But there's tremendous psychological pressure to hire people that look and and feel and think just like you. And, and there's all this, you know, with the media, there's all this research and 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 people are thinking about it with with respect to you, news. That's what, who you tend to that's know, what we, just statistically. It's who you know and it's also right. who you feel most comfortable with. If you're in finance, you want to associate with your people, yourself with people whom you trust. Who do you trust? You trust people that look just like you. Mm-hmm. That is a formula for disaster. Mm-hmm. So under our servant leadership program at Bridgeway, part of what we're trying to do is hire people intentionally that don't agree with us, mm-hmm. people who have a different view into things. The cool thing about that is, like, this is you know diversity of ideas and and framework. If you look at the what people look th- toward as, as the physical diversity uh, around gender, um, race. Um, you know, skin color. We've got more diversity there as well at Bridgeway than the vast majority of our competitors. I'm proud of that. It's not something we set out to do. On my team of eight people at Bridgeway, I'm the only uh, uh, male wasp on the team. Okay. And again, there's there's no rule that you know uh, that that has to be case. We're not you know we don't have quotas or anything like that. But we're looking for diversity of viewpoint and opinion and people that don't agree with us. And and I have some people who's like, do you know that this other team member doesn't agree with you on X, Y, and Z? You know, like yes, and that's a good thing. <laughs> that's what that's how you have different ideas and helps you uh, uh, get out of your own silo and and moves you forward. Tell us about the JM Accountability Group. <laughs> okay. So um, I have a, an amazing support network in my life in general. So you mm-hmm. could start with my 94-year-old mom. I'm her baby still at, you know, mm-hmm. age 61. Um, friends, uh, you know, mentors. 94, that's some good genes. That is. That is. Uh, you have to work on that because my, my father passed away at nearly my age. So, uh, you know, I try and lean toward really taking care of myself. Um, but part of uh, part of a great support network for me over the last 18 years has been a group called Firewood, uh, and it's an accountability group. And and it started when a friend of mine called me up and said, "So, I want you to be on my board." And like Charlie, what board are you talking about? Like he worked for Exxon, and he wasn't in a position to invite me onto the board right. of Exxon at the time. Uh, and he said, "Well, no, the board of directors of my life." And I said, well, what's that? What does that look like? So he kind of got me into the conversation. Um, if I examined my life, I had a lot of areas of support, very little accountability. Huh. So this group is one that still meets 18 years later, um, about once a month, every three, four weeks, uh, with the specific purpose of holding each other accountable to what our life dreams and goals and, and milestones are. So if you take on homework, uh, people will suggest uh, homework. If you take that on, which we document, you come back the next meeting, you better have done your homework homework or, you know, like you're going to be actually held accountable for that. Um, And I think it's I know I need that in my life. I don't know that everybody needs that. I think probably they do. But I know that I need it uh, in my life to stay on track or I just am going to get off track or procrastinate or all the kinds of things that come up. Huh. That, that's really fascinating. And and before I get to my standard 
questions. I, I have two last things I have to ask you about. Yes. One is how you track your time, and the second is your trip to Africa. So I'll, I'll let you pick okay. whichever one you want to start Well, with. tracking my time is uh, something I do about every year and a half. Uh, cycle just to see am I am I spending the resource of my time how I say does it line up with my life goals and what I say is most important you can do the same thing by the way with your checkbook if you you know mm-hmm. you want to you want a litmus test of are you actually living the life that you intend to and say you are those are two views in so how I spend my time is is something I'm a you know I'm a quant so but of with I'm but, with, <laughs> but with my checkbook. I could export it to Quicken or Amex or whatever, yes. and it will give me a breakdown. Yes. You spent this much on T&E and yes. this much on, you know, down the list. How do you physically track your time yeah, I wish over there were each 24-hour I wish there day? were a mint.com for, right. you know, uh, my time, because it's a real pain uh, to do. I, I do it in a spreadsheet. Like, it's kind of 15 You minutes. update that every day? For, for a three-month period, so we have quarterly cycle, for a three-month period every year and a half or so, I do that to get a accounting of how am I really spending my time and is it in line with what I want and what can I learn from that? I mean, it's like, what are the takeaways? Do, do you find that, oh, gee, I'm spending a lot of time doing this and I didn't realize it? Yes. I would imagine if people actually did that, they would say, I watch how much TV? Yes. I think it would be shocking. I watch very little TV and you do. that's that's one reason. I, you know, I tape some uh, things, so I watch it kind of on my schedule. But did the time tracking lead to less TV? Uh, it, it reinforced it very strongly, yes. Huh. yes and then tell did. us tell us about the trip to Africa. So this was in June of this year, uh, and a, a dream we'd had for a while of taking seven partners at Bridgeway. So this is out of uh, 30 uh, people. We took seven of the members of our firm to um, Rwanda as a base and then Eastern Congo. Eastern Congo... Well, let me back up a little bit. We give half of our profits away. The core mission of, uh, of Bridgeway is peacemaking, reconciliation, and ending genocide. We have a focus area, which is sub-Sahara Africa. Our last, our last conflict we worked on was um, the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army, which you may remember from the Coney 2012 uh, video and, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, everything that came about. Uh, from that. But this was the longest running conflict in Africa, and we engaged with partners on the ground in Africa to try and reduce the violence there, which we got an independent assessment that said yes, between 90 95%, depending on how you measure it, wow. over a six year period, uh, uh, decreased the violence around this conflict. So, a hit, like you actually can make a difference, move the needle on this stuff. Um, we're in Congo on this last trip to uh, just bring partners in to see you know, the area and kinds of things and potential partners we're working with. This is the area of the highest incidence of rape as a weapon of war in the world. Uh-huh. So that hits my radar screen. Uh, a life goal of mine is ending genocide. This is a, a stepping stone toward that. Um, and uh, and it was sharing that. Uh, that was led not by me, but by Shannon Davis, our, our head of our foundation. is amazing, amazing, passionate, engaged, creative um, woman who's Who's got our mission uh, mm-hmm. written all over her heart and in, and and her actions? Wow, that that's quite astonishing. Would you would you recommend people uh, visit that part of the world? What what is that actually that experience actually like? So um, Rwanda is an easy place to go. Uh-huh. There was a genocide there, you know, in 1994. It's been some time. What's happened in that country is inspiring and amazing. 
Uh, so definitely recommend that. I wouldn't go into the specific areas that we did unless you are with people that really know what mm-hmm. they're doing. But the inspiration that comes from that, the coming back to the U.S. and knowing where you fit into the world is worth it's, – it's just worth its weight in gold. Wow. That, that, that's really um, inspiring. Let's, uh, let's jump to our standard questions that we ask all our guests in our last 20 minutes or so. Um, tell me something important about your background that most people are unaware of. Okay. My father uh, was the president of an oil exploration firm. From oh. him, I learned uh, risk management because you don't survive in the exploration business, especially uh, when he was doing it, uh, without a, a real strong controls around risk management. Also, uh, integrity is the number one business business value. I learned that from him, uh, mm-hmm. and we spin that out in a lot of different ways at Bridgeway. From my mom, uh, my mom was a soldier uh, in the war on poverty in the 1960s. I was a young kid at the time, and she kind of, like, I was her fourth child. They were all in school, and she kind of put me under her arm and, and go out doing volunteer work. Um, I remember a, a daycare center, you know, that I volunteered uh, with, uh, along with her. She did a number of things across um, racial, gender, other other boundaries, uh, lines. So I learned from her, if something's wrong, like, you don't have to live with it. Step across that line. Make something happen. Make something happen. Move the needle. Um, she was a great model, is still at 94, an amazing model of that. Hmm. Uh, some early mentors. Tell us about who your early mentors were. I have learned something from every boss I've ever worked for. So mm-hmm. the very first boss, I, I was a paper boy at age 11, but my first boss um, was at Baskin Robbins, this guy from Argentina who is just a great entrepreneur and great with kids. Uh, and, and what I learned from him was uh, getting the hard stuff on the table and dealing with it in a constructive, not oppressive way. That's a principle I've used everywhere uh, the rest of my life, and I'm thankful for him teaching me that. More recently, I would say last night I was at dinner uh, with Ruth Messenger, who is the, um, I'm a big believer in mentoring, and uh, she's been a mentor uh, for some time. Uh, uh, She's 15 years older than me, so she's like a window into uh, what I need to be paying attention to in the Mm -hmm. decades ahead. Um, Very bright, boots on the ground, committed, uh, believes things that can can change, and she was the last head of the American Jewish World Service, and I've loved studying how she does what she does and mixing it up with her. So tell us about some investors that impacted your approach. Who Who's influenced you over the years? You, you've mentioned Eugene Fama. Yes. Uh, who, who's affected the way you look at, at investing? So uh, Eugene Fama would be one as in terms of a framework for risk. Uh, prior to that, uh, Jack Bogle around costs. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I love managing costs down, uh, and he's a great model for that. Um, Jeremy Siegel, Stocks for the Long Run, so investing in a diversified way uh, in stocks as as the growth engine over decades, not months and years. And then probably um, Daniel Kahneman on the behavioral finance side. I'd, I'd, I'd say he was the you know one of the fathers of behavioral finance, and that opened up my eyes. Um, let's talk about books. This is everybody's uh, favorite question. 
uh, fiction, nonfiction, classics, recent stuff. Tell us, tell us what you're reading and enjoying. Um, so I'll give you three uh, titles. One is the Bible, so great mm-hmm. uh, uh, mapping for life in general, but especially finance. There's a lot written in the Bible about finance. The thing I mentioned about uh, you know borrowing, for example, is but but that's you know, tithing, right and you're doing five x tithing, so you're over and above. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a friend who says tithing's a bad deal. Uh, like if if you're all in, you're all in. That's a hundred percent. So whether you're spending it, you know, on you know uh, something, you know, going out for dinner tonight or not, you still need to be all in. So I think that's an interesting way of thinking and, about that issue. And then that's before we get to the issue of the the debt jubilee where there's forgiveness of debt is it every seven seven years, years. Uh, so that that's a fascinating uh, it is topic it is and we should think seriously about that so maybe maybe not literally because I think that, you know our large banks and small banks too might have a problem with that bondholders but would not be thinking happy. about what underlies that and showing up as generous and not um, holding uh, holding something over. It, it, other people in a way that's disempowering. We should spend a lot of time on that, and you should do that if you're a bank, in my in my opinion. Two other books, titles, Daring Greatly, which is about uh, shame and guilt. Daring uh, Greatly. Yes. Uh, Brene Brown's uh, book uh, based on 10 years of her research, which is fascinating. Like, as a research guy, the uh-huh. research itself is just fascinating. But the topic is about shame and guilt in our culture and what you can do about it, and I highly recommend the book. And the last one would be um, uh, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Okay. So this is, uh, this is a, a book that gets into anybody that's in science or research should read uh, some chapters of this book that deal with that. We all think that because we're doing numbers and statistics that we're objective, this book would say, mm, not so much. Your biases come out You're regardless. Bi- we're human. Like, we are just as human. And if you think that you don't have that problem, it's going to creep in more, not less. So as a research team, like, we live and breathe this stuff. It's like, how do we hold ourselves accountable to not letting our natural biases come in? So we have, a, we have something we call confessing our biases. So sometimes we'll come in with an insight, but it starts with, I need to confess, you know, a bias. And it's like, I'm a contrarian. So, like, I would come in as like, guys, I'm, I love, you know, this is a contrarian situation. Of course I'm going to love it, right? That doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. So since you've started managing money on a quantitative basis, what has changed? Oh, so we're talking about uh, you know 24 or 30 years, depending on when you want to start counting. Bridgeway's uh, uh, celebrating its 25th anniversary next year. In that time frame, certainly um, passive um, and indexing has really uh, taken off. That has uh, very significantly reduced costs. That's good, not bad. Um, for investors, uh, more attention to tax efficiency, which I think can and will continue to grow. Technology. So in this period, the internet came in, which just transformed research and how you do it. It's been a really wonderful thing. Robo advisors would be, you know, part of the technology uh, part, and there's some good things about that. There are also some bad things about some of these technology things. The the top of the list would be if you make it easier for somebody to day trade. That's actually a bad thing. I agree that's with what's gonna I agree with back with Jack Bogle. Um, on that point, we should be worried about being able to day trade um, ETFs and the implications uh, mm-hmm. of that. So those are some of the things that have changed in in my investing. 
So um, along the lines of your uh, annual fiscal disaster or annual fiscal confession, shouldn't say disaster, uh, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, we've had a lot of different categories. We've had uh, compliance, um, uh, failure, at least disappointment. Um, to the to the tune that we said we want to become a top quartile player uh, in compliance. And my compliance officer says, John, you can't say that because, like, how do you measure that? And like, you know, what's the accountability on that? That's a great point. That's an example of somebody coming in with a different view um, on that. But we knew we had to up our game. We spent a lot of resources uh, to to make that true. The source of some of that, uh, if I hold a mirror up, was I was really cheap in the early years of Bridgeway. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to um, outsource anything that I didn't understand myself, and I was new to the industry. So we were our own transfer agent, we were our own pricing agent, we you know, programmed our own software and stuff that people just don't do. Learned a lot out of that. Probably held on to too long. Uh, low cost in favor of getting uh, more help in. So we've changed that. That's be an example. That was from, you know, the early years of Bridgeway. That that's really interesting. So you mentioned um, uh, physical fitness. What do you do to stay fit? What do you do to stay mentally sharp outside of the office? So uh, I ran four miles with our president this morning in Central Park. I'm visiting uh, New York City uh, today to be here with you, and that's one of my favorite places to run. So a typical week for me would be uh, two, two days running, a short run and a long run. So I ran six miles last Sunday. Uh, two days. So the four mile is the short run. Is that's, that what you're that's my me? short. Yeah, three. Right, now three, I'm just three, completely humiliated. All right, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> um, actually, ran my first marathon ever. I've only run one last year. Uh-huh. Um, that was a life goal that I set at uh, 28. Um, how, how was the experience? I have to ask. Because I'm, I always remind people, you know, the first guy who ran a marathon dropped dead at the end. That is true. That is absolutely true. I, I and took I didn't a very different point. lesson from that than you did. <laughs> well, training is key. Okay. There. So uh, excellent training, um, and 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 there, I mean, there are great life lessons in that too. That mm-hmm. the if, to run a marathon successfully and do it well and not hurt yourself, uh-huh. if you can do that, if you have the discipline and you get the right. Like though, you can apply that to any career. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like that. Two days a week uh, would be Pilates, and two weeks, uh, two days a week uh, would be um, weightlifting. And I usually try and mix it up with a swim. I was going to say it's always something different. You yeah, think I like I like cross training uh, mm-hmm. on that. Um, but I like research, and so that's the source of. Some of that. And now, and now, our two favorite questions that I ask all our guests. Uh, so, a millennial or a recent college grad comes to you and says, "I'm interested in going into quantitative finance as a career." What sort of advice would you give them? Well, uh, first of all, I'd say um, it's a great industry, great opportunities. Um, people are shying away from it right now, which means the opportunities are bigger. Extreme competition. So those would be those would be the the things that I you know uh, uh, you know overlay somebody that's thinking about getting in. As, as far as overall advice, and by the way, in my family of origin, advice is the language of love. Uh-huh. Like if we're not if you if a family member's not giving you advice, like is something wrong? So I love advice. The the, the bigger picture advice with the millennial would be. Um, save aggressively, um, be generous with the results of that, 
um, and have big life goals, pursue them relentlessly within the framework of a balanced life. And our final question, what is it that you know about investing today that you wish you knew 30 years ago? Definitely the behavior gap that we talked about, the cycle of people you know, chasing hot returns and panicking on the downturn. Um, we're doing a better job uh, with this, uh, slowly, gradually. We have a, a, a partnership um, uh, with uh, two strategies uh, with the BAM Alliance. I mm-hmm. think they do a superior job of this, and so we're learning from them. But we've got to do a better job. So um, I wish that I had known the dynamics of that 30 years ago. Maybe we'd be farther along with uh, you know, a solution uh, and a more effective one. We've been speaking with John Montgomery. He is the founder, chairman, and chief investment officer at Bridgeway Capital Management. If you enjoy this conversation, look up or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 150 or so such conversations that we've had over the previous three years. We appreciate and enjoy your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my ACE team who helped put this podcast together each week. Medina Parwana is our audio producer and engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.